Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Trump Jr. got pulled away. And then I had about five minutes with Trump. And it was right when Bloomberg was about to enter the race. And we talked about Bloomberg for a little bit. And he struck me as just a freaking... He was a normal guy. When I said hello to him, when, when Junior introduced me, I said, it's an honor to meet you, Mr. President. And I could tell that by even saying that, if I had said, yo, Don, what's up? That would have been fine too. Like, I just think, I'm not saying the guy is, he's the greatest man on earth. I'm not saying he's the most honest person on earth. Politics is a dirty freaking game and he's decided to play it. It will be a fight. And there'll be a lot of death, unfortunately. It will be a fight we will win but a lot less depth, but there will be death. People should be actually kept out of the country for at least 28 days. America is not prepared. G'day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Butterfield Effect. My name's Isaac Butterfield. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hope you're doing well. But first, ladies and gentlemen, this video is brought to you by Cafe Lombate Rosters. Premium organic coffee at home. You don't need to leave the house anymore to get the best coffee available. It comes straight to your door. Amazing coffee bagged in a recyclable coffee bag, delivered in a biodegradable bag. It's the coffee the environment loves. I was never much of a coffee drinker until Cafe Lombardi reached out to me and they said, here Buttsman, take some of this fine brew and caffeinate yourself. And now I'm not sleeping all day, it's great. But it goes further than that. A portion of every single bag sold goes straight to the Sydney Children's Hospital. Amazing work. So indulge yourself. Sign up to their subscription with the link down below and you'll get 10% off. And if you use the code word BUTSMAN, you'll get another 10% off. That's 20% off. Cafe Lombardi Roasters supports this channel, so make sure you support them. Today we have a fantastic guest. His new book, Don't Burn This Book, is now out. Came out on uh, Tuesday here in Australia. Very, very exciting. He's pumped about it. And his book is a call to action for the people who feel targeted by the woke, progressive people of this world. And I think that is a lot of us. People who come to this channel, people who enjoy this content, often have very similar ways of thinking. And I think a lot of people will enjoy this podcast. It was a great chat uh, with Dave. He's a very nice dude. And... Um, I hope you enjoyed. If you did, leave it a like and make sure you subscribe as well and check out our Clips channel. Don't forget Butterfield Effect Clips channel. If you can't digest the entire podcast in one big go, head to the Clips channel and you can get little bite-sized pieces. Very exciting stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my conversation with the host of The Rubin Report, Mr. Dave Rubin. I was supposed to be in New York on a full media blitz. Now I'm doing it from home. Somehow that seems more difficult than uh, if I was doing it on the road. I don't know why. Do you, do you film from uh, your house or you got a studio down the road? What's your Yeah, go? yeah, this is, this is my garage, believe it or not. Yeah, no, I'm, mate, I'm in the same boat. I'm going to blow your mind here. This is a virtual background. Uh, that's my background. That's Oh, there you go. Real life. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. <laughs> Dave Rubin, welcome to the show. It's a, it's an absolute 
mammoth effort to have you here all the way. <laughs> Where are you, LA? It's all happening. Goodness me. This is the, the biggest moment for the Butterfield Effect from the bunker here during quarantine. It's all happening, mate. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's good to be with you. I am from the bunker here in Los Angeles. I don't know. How do the pipes even work? Like, how can I mean, this possibly no be? You're in the future. It's 9 a.m. It's like 3 p.m. for me here. We're, we're in different universes, yet somehow the internet lets us do this. And this is one of the things that I've spoken about before with quarantine. It's actually made people closer together. There's these podcasts that I've always wanted to do. Um, and I've spoken about for some time, like one with Michaela Peterson that I'm doing yeah. in, in a couple of days. And something that I wanted to do, because I was coming over uh, to LA to, uh, to do some stand-up over there. And I never thought these would, these would come to fruition. You know, I had to bring a producer and a camera guy. And now I'm just doing them two meters away from my bedroom. It's, it's very easy. It's actually kind of cool. You know, we're actually watching mainstream media and online media. They've been going like this for a long time. I mean, we've been watching the crumbling of mainstream media and the well-deserved crumbling, I might add, for a long yeah. time. And now we're watching the rise of the online thing. And it's like, yeah, people, everyone's at home. So you got a little bit more time to, to talk to some interesting people. And now the fact that we can do this across the world and, and it's pretty cheap to do and all that, it's awesome. And I love it because it also... One of the coolest things that I've experienced over the last couple of years is that it's pretty awesome to know that people in Mexico are thinking the same thing as people in Sweden, the same thing that the people in Australia are thinking, which is the same thing that the people in China are thinking. Like there's some really cool stuff happening. And if you're a little ahead of the game and you got your head on straight, you can really take advantage of that. And that's the beautiful thing about YouTube. And it's something that I'm sure you've found and I found as well. This ability we now have in 2020 and, and the years previous to collect a group of like-minded people, something that, that has never been able to be done before. There's always, you know, outliers who completely disagree or fight against the thing. But with YouTube, you can have people, you can decide who you want to listen to. If they want to listen to the Ruben Report, they go out of their way to subscribe. It's not just shoved in their face. I think it's an absolute, it's a beautiful thing to move forward into the future. Well, the question is, how long will it remain a beautiful thing? And, and is it being manipulated right now in ways that we don't know? I, I suspect it is, but your broad point is right. It's like, how cool for somebody, even if you're not a creator, but you're just somebody who wants to learn about different people, different parts of the world, and why people think this or that, or is the Australian political system better than the American system, or is that better than the Canadian system, or this or that, that you can actually now on the ground have people sharing their thoughts. And you, can, and you can go ahead and find it and hopefully the algorithm doesn't trick you too hard in the process. And that is a tricky thing too, the algorithm, the all-powerful algorithm. I mean, in, in the Australian world, you, if you're a comedian and you do YouTube or you are a YouTuber, you are looked down upon. Is that the same thing <laughs> in America as an intellectual, as someone who's just written a book that's just come out two days ago? Is this something that is, is, is you've seen at, or people look at you rather and they go, okay, this guy's just a YouTuber. Like, who cares what he has to say? You know, it's kind of funny. It's a great question, actually, because it's a little bit of like, you know, things change over time. So five years ago, if you would have said to me, you're a YouTuber, I would have thought, well, I am on YouTube, but I don't really love that because it kind of sounds like I'm making cat videos or jump cuts or whatever. I think what's happened over the last five years particularly is that people have found that there are some great intellects on uh, YouTube, there are great professors, there are great scientists, there are great communicators of ideas. 
uh, there are just interesting people doing interesting things that are outside of the mainstream that are YouTubers. So if by some technical definition I'm a YouTuber, then, then that's okay. But I would say YouTube really is just one of the destinations that people use to either search for my stuff or get it. You know, obviously we have a podcast also and we put stuff up on Twitter and everywhere else and at rubenreport.com. And it's just like a part of the machine. I would say what I am more than anything else, you know, like I'm an interviewer, I'm a comic, I, I say what I think, you know, I wrote this book. Um, YouTuber, yeah, we're, we're doing this on YouTube, so I can't say we're not YouTubers at any level. Um, but I think five years ago, that felt kind of like, oh, like you're a kid. Where now, you know, you watch CNN anchors or for you guys, Sky News or whatever it is. It's like these guys are all doing their stuff from home right now. So really without their fancy studios and all the makeup and the huge production value, it's like we're all kind of even right now. And in many ways, some of us that have been doing this for a while that actually can speak off our mind and know what we think, in many ways, we're, we're progressing past them, which is actually kind of cool. And, and post this whole, whole COVID situation, it will be very interesting to see how the mainstream uh, transitions back. Will they go straight back to what they used to do? You know, you run your journalism course, you jump through all the hoops, you, 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 you kiss the right backsides, you know, or will they, will they run something, a different type of model? Because right now, people, they decide when they sit down, they have dinner or uh, of an evening, they think to themselves, okay, am I going to watch Netflix? Am I going to watch Amazon? Am I going to watch YouTube? Or am I going to watch normal TV or cable TV or whatever it happens to be? They, YouTube is amongst the mix. And I think that's such an important thing. For me particularly, I, I started out doing stand-up in Australia about six years ago. And, you know, Australia is a country of 26 million people, which I think the uh, the greater LA area is something like 40 million. <laughs> it's insane. We got a lot of people over here. Yeah. crazy and 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 uh, australia being the same size as america you know this is a very sparse land to create an audience is very difficult you don't have to tra you have to travel everywhere but youtube gave me the ability to create that audience myself and that's something i'm forever grateful for and i think it's it's something great for you as well i mean you've now written a book off the back of this audience that you've grown people who maybe they don't hold off every word and wait for you to you know like the thing is, like, we aren't these YouTubers where people are like, okay, we, I can't wait for the next vlog to come out, this type of thing, young kids. Clean. These are people who, they have opinions. They have yeah. oh, thought yeah. processes and they want to hear someone explain things or give their point of view on, on certain things. I just, I'm sort of racking on the same point. I'm just stoked that YouTube is a thing because it's given yeah, me a no, listen. For all my frustrations with YouTube, and people know I complain about the algorithm all the time, and I complain about demonetization and the rest of it, the fact is they're giving us the pipes to, to do what we do. It doesn't mean it can't be better. It doesn't mean we shouldn't push them when, we, when they want to be pushed. It doesn't mean that there will be other competition and other products and the rest of it. But yes, the fact that this can all happen is, is pretty awesome. And I got to tell you, when I was in Australia with Jordan Peterson, and we did uh, about eight shows in Australia, and then we were going to come back to Australia, but, but things got a little screwy. Um, I freaking loved the Australian audiences. You guys remind me more than any other country that we went to, even more than the UK and Canada, of the American ethos. Like there is like a, a spirit of individualism in Australia and a spirit of fun and political incorrectness. The, the crowds were amazing, the laughs. I mean, you know this from standup. You know when a crowd is just juiced and ready to go. And all of the crowds in Australia were like, where they were yelling and I would, I do a lot of crowd work, so I was messing around with people and they were fun versus you go, do a lot of the stuff in the rest of Europe 
and they sort of treat it as a stage show. Like you perform, we laugh, you perform, we laugh, like there's a contract. But Australia had much more of a sort of what I, what I think of as like a New York stand-up feel that I, that I really love. And one night, Jordan Peterson and I went to an open mic. We thought we were going to a burlesque show. It ended up being an open mic in Melbourne. There were like eight people in there. You know what those open mics are like. I mean, it was just an absolute horrible just yeah and and for guys like us that have lived through it it's particularly painful right so jordan's watching it as an outsider and he can sort of appreciate the struggle and you know all the weirdness but for me it's like i live that life so it's very hard for me to watch it as i'm sure it would be for you and we watched you know we saw a couple guys that were decent or one or two jokes but the whole thing was pretty painful but what was really funny is that every single comic there recognized jordan and then me so they basically were just tailoring their acts in front of eight people to Jordan Peterson. So they were basically using it as therapy sessions with Jordan. And I was like, you, you can't make this up. We're at a, bur a burlesque show across the world. And I got stand-up comics going up one at a time to be analyzed by the leading intellectual <laughs> in the world. It's just amazing. To tour with uh, Jordan Peterson must have been a very strange Sorry. affair not only to see him as and become his friend but to see his rise during that time and i i've been listening to dr peterson since his first time on joe rogan's podcast and prior to that when he was speaking out against uh the speech issues that were happening in uh, the universities in canada there and i met him at brisbane airport and i was in the lounge there and i saw him and and i'm i'm someone who grew up around professional sport uh, my father played and I met a lot of famous people through that who were famous in Australia. So I'm pretty good with not freaking out and going full, you know, just <laughs> mad fangirl. And I yeah. saw Jordan Peterson and I freaked out. I didn't know what to say to him. I just said, thank you. And then smiled politely and then just, just panicked the entire time. I walked away. I nearly spewed. It was horrible. But he seems <laughs> like a very nice guy. I saw a lot of versions of that, so don't feel bad. I mean, I saw tons, you know, we traveled, we did about 120 stops in about 20 countries in a year. So it was, it was pretty intense. The last shows that we did together were the Australia shows. He ended up going to New Zealand and a few more, but I, I had some commitments back here in the States. But the, the absolute last show we did was uh, the Sydney Opera House, which was wow. just, just incredible. It was a matinee show, the only matinee show we did the entire tour. It was a beautiful day in Sydney. You, you know what the, what the pier there is like. The energy out there, we walked, we took a walk on the pier about an hour before the show. And you know, he's, he's in a suit and it's a beautiful warm day in Sydney and just hundreds of people just following us behind, just trying to shake his hand, take a picture. But I saw many, many people that would go completely tongue-tied. People literally could not remember their name. And, and I got to tell you, Jordan, Jordan treated every single person the same. What I actually remember about that day most specifically was, you know, Jordan does that carnivore diet that I'm sure you're gonna to talk to Michaela about. So he, he was only eating red meat and we had to leave the theater. The reason we were walking bef right before the show was because we had to go get a steak for him. So we sat down in a restaurant on the pier there, a steak joint, and there were tons of fans that were having lunch there that were on the way to the show. And the security guard with us said, you know what, let me make sure that nobody comes up to us because, you know, you, you have to have your head on right. This is a big show. It's, you know, you need to eat. And Jordan said, no, no, if anyone wants to say hi, if anyone wants to take a picture, I'll do it. And this was after, I mean, it was literally like our 120th show, our 20 some odd countries in. 
And it was like, he never let anyone down. I did not see it happen once. And he, you know, kids would come up to him, adults, people would be crying. And he just, it, it's such a beautiful thing because what the guy did is what he, he preached in that book that I have right over there, which was he set his room in order and then tried to fix the world. And I saw him do it. And, and I should just add, it doesn't make him perfect. He obviously has had some struggles since and he's getting better. I, I can promise you that. I saw him a couple months ago. It doesn't mean he's perfect. And I think that's where people get a little confused. They, they think, oh, you wrote something amazing. You helped all these people. You have to be a perfect human. But none of us are perfect. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll be back and better than ever. And, I, and we need him. You know, it's like this Corona thing. There's so much weirdness in the world. We need the guy. To think that just because someone is an intellectual or the creative enough to write a book, that they are able to create that in their own mind is, some, is, is somewhat of a disingenuous thought to have i think it's it's one of those things that people often do and i think it's a way to just to discredit jordan peterson in a way it's just like well if he can't do it then no one can do it but as you said these people coming up to him crying you know in pieces not being able to structure a sentence this man who is genuinely a kind and seemingly gentle human being who is also hated by so many people for the most ridiculous reasons. And this is one of the things I, I wanted to talk to you about was the way that two sides of the media constructs a completely different way of a news article. You have the right side of the media, left side, and they both have the exact same story to produce, but they come out with two different angles to it. And I, I find that difficult to difficult to wrap my head around because I was told from a young age that, you know, you need to take everything you read with a grain of salt, everything, because it's someone's opinion. But not until I became older and I started having articles written about me and all this type of business <laughs> that I really yeah. saw that this is just, there is so much bullshit that is what is, that is printed in newspapers. And now that anyone can write an article online, obviously there's a lot more. How do you think that affects people's psyche? Well, look, as somebody that's had plenty of hit pieces written about me and as somebody that was on tour with the leading intellectual in the world where every day there was another hit piece. I mean, the day we did a couple shows in Sweden, when we went back to Sweden for the second show, that morning the foreign minister of Sweden said that she wished that Jordan Peterson would crawl back under the rock he came from. You wow. know, the, like the, that's a foreign minister of a Western nation when all you have is this psychologist coming to tell people that they should be responsible for themselves and, and fix their lives. But there were New York Times hit pieces, you know, The Guardian, all, all the usual suspects, of course. And I've been through that. So it's funny that you kind of frame it as, oh, I thought the world was a certain way. But then when you see it against your friends and yourself so consistently, you really wake up to it quickly. And then once you wake up to it, it's one of those things. It's sort of like the red pill in the matrix. It's like, once you see it and you know what's real, you can't unsee it no matter yeah. how badly you want to. You take that red pill, well, you can't take the blue pill now. It's too late. The ship has sailed. So I've seen, look, the New York Times, or I should say the paper formerly known as the New York Times, that used to be like, you know, the guardian of journalism in America. They, they wrote a piece about YouTubers radicalizing people to the alt-right. And one of the pictures that they wrote right above the headline of alt-right was a giant picture of my face. I mean, we can go through every political opinion I have, and there would be nothing you could find that would be close to alt-right in any, in any sensible definition. My dad, who's, who's a good New York liberal for his whole life, and I mean liberal in, in the right sense of liberalism, um, he's subscribed to the New York Times even before I was born. So now 45 some odd years, he has to go get a coffee 
every Sunday at the same place he always does and have a friend come up to him and say, oh, I didn't know your son David was uh, part of the alt-right. And it's like, they don't, it's not that they don't realize that they're destroying people. They're intentionally destroying people because this is the best way I can say it. Journalists, and I have to use air quotes when I say it, journalists have destroyed journalism. And they've gone in so deep at this point and lied about so many people and so many things that they don't know how to back out. So another great example of this would be, you know, when we had the Brett Kavanaugh stuff, our, our uh, Supreme Court justice, when he was in the nomination process, and, you know, every day, New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, throwing up all these headlines about the, you know, these allegations against him. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't touch the allegations, but we have to acknowledge that they're allegations. But for weeks, it's, he's, a, he's a, a misogynist and a rapist, and a, he has to step down and withdraw his name and all this crazy stuff. Meanwhile, Joe Biden now has a credible allegation against him that I believe last I heard the woman was filing criminal charges. The, the media completely ignores it because he's a Democrat, so he's thought of as a good guy. They completely ignore it until the New York Times finally runs a story. And guess what page that story was on? You're not going to believe it. Okay. Didn't make it to page, didn't make it to page one. It was either page 23 or 24 when they finally printed it and, and they managed to make a good portion of the article about allegations about Trump. So I think when people see this stuff, it's, it, you sort of, you're scared at first, right? I'm sure you went through this too. You're kind of like, ah, that, I don't like this. That can't be right. Am I suddenly one of the bad guys? And, and then when you see it against you and then you got your family members going, are you those bad things that they're saying? And, and the rest, and then you got friends turning on you and everything else. Uh, it's, it's pretty scary, but in many ways, that's why I wrote this book, because I've been through it. I survived. I was with Jordan. He's been through it. He survived. I, many of the people I've interviewed have been through it and survived. And I want to map a roadmap for people to survive themselves, because it's not just public people. They're trying to quash everybody. They're trying to quash the average person. When they try to take out Jordan Peterson, it's not just to take out that psychologist from Canada. It's to signal to everybody else, we're going to come for you too. So I think the more of us that stand up, the quieter they'll become. I think it's the only way to defeat it. Just listen to what you say about the, the book there. It seems like it might be a bit of a tool for people. I say this on Twitter a lot. Now, I've, I'm not much of a Twitter user. I only go there for content for videos it's the only, and jokes. That's the only reason I go there. I follow a lot of woke progressive people. It's, I, I get on Twitter for 20 minutes. I freak out. I've got a panic attack. I've got to chill out, all right? It's, it's, just, yeah. it's an insane place. But it seems like in what you just said, a lot of people are discovering that if they say the wrong thing, quote unquote, they will have this woke army coming for them. And how do they deal with that? I, I see it with these, maybe let's say a feminist group. They see something that a, that, a, that a man has said that they can take on board and think, well, that is horrible. That is uh, misogyny. That is X, Y, Z. They take that on board and then they say, right, we need to destroy this bloke. We need to find out where he works. Who's his partner? We need to find out where's his kids go to school. And we're going to share all that information and then we're going to go after him. Because he has said something that is slightly misogynist or completely misogynist, horrible, we need to destroy him in every single sense of the world. That is such yeah. a strange tribal attitude. And I don't know where it's come from. Well, I think where it's come from mostly, and, and you're right, this really is what the heart of the book is about because I'm trying to give people the tools to think for themselves, but it's not just thinking for yourself. It's thinking for yourself and then being able to apply that to the world. And the only way you can do that is if you conquer this monster. 
Because yes, it's not just if you maybe said something misogynistic or something totally misogynistic, it's just if they apply that label to you. So in many cases, it's not that anyone's done anything racist or anything like that. You might just say um, that men and women have different biological differences. We all know that. That is a fact, right? And this is, I'm sure you know of Douglas Murray, the great uh, writer from the UK. He always says, it's like, we're suddenly debating things that we've known to be true. Now they're all up for debate. That's not a good sign for society. And, and my other, uh, the other line that I love from him, he always says, when the barbarians are at the gate, we're going to be debating what gender pronoun to call them. And I think that's sort of where we're at right now. Instead of dealing with the actual issues of the day, Let's really talk about the important things of society. Instead, we're debating about gender pronouns and we're debating about all of these things that we've settled already. And when I say settled, I mean from a Western perspective, but particularly from an American perspective. If you live in America, you're a citizen of America, you are free. That's the only privilege there is. You are privileged because you grew up in the freest freaking place ever. It does not mean it's perfect. There's no such thing as perfection, by the way. I think that's one of the flaws of the left. They, they think that they can create a perfect system. And, and we can't create a perfect system because we are not perfect. So they're, they're debating things that have long been settled. And, it, and they do it in an oddly religious manner. So it's very weird for me because, as you know, I was a lefty. My whole life I was a lefty. I, I thought I was a good lefty. And then I started seeing some weird things. And it was like, guys, how is it that everyone we disagree with is a racist and a bigot and a... Islamophobe and uh, all of these things like that just doesn't add up. And the second I started just asking those questions as a, as a lifelong lefty, the hate that I was getting was unfreaking believable. And then the odd thing, and I, I think you've probably been through a version of this, and I've I've met a couple, uh, I've done a couple podcasts with some Australians, and I've met some Australian comics um, that are that are sort of seeing their own version of this. Suddenly, you're, you're thought of as a good lefty. You kind of wake up. You think about things a little bit differently. And then all these people on the right that you thought were the bad guys, they're like, hey, I'm over here. You want to chat? Let's chat. Let's agree to disagree. Let's have a beer. Let's go out. Let's shoot the shit. It's, it's all good. And that is a very shocking thing for people because I think our factory settings are sort of taught to us like, oh, Democrats good, Republicans bad. Lefties care about poor people, Republicans or people on the right care about money, you know, Democrats are for peace, Republicans are for war. These are all just like 2D, very childish arguments, but it takes a lot to get out of that and, and be able to say, no, I'm not a misogynist. I'm just laying out some basic truth here. Uh, it, but you got to have the balls to do it. I think that the, the tribalism aspect of all of that is so is so fierce right now. I mean, the, and, and the political spectrum has moved as well. As far as if you are oh, yeah. on, if you are seen on the left, if you are in that side of politics, you need to be hardcore. There is not people, there people don't, yeah. people are not woke enough. That is the yes. issue here. And then if you're on the right, it's just like, hey, we're moderate, do whatever you want. You know, if you're gay, you're straight, cool. If you're black, white, wonderful. And that's I'll tell you the how it's moved. There's a, there's a truly fundamental reason for that that I write about in the book that I really want people to understand because I think people see exactly what you just said there, but they can't quite figure out why that is. And it makes sense. There is a reason for it. So if you're on the right, let's say you're a conservative, and I know these terms are a little bit different for Australians than they are for Americans, yes. but I think most people will kind of get what we're saying. If you're a conservative or a libertarian or a classical liberal, basically a limited government guy, 
you believe in individual rights, meaning that you believe that if you're an Australian citizen or you're an American citizen, you deserve the exact same rights. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what sexuality you are, the rest of it. That's, that's the underlying principle. And, and to add a little more from an American perspective, if on the right, people believe that the Constitution is our founding document that is a good document that has freed people. So there's a, there's a unifying principle. Now, it doesn't mean that they all behave the same way or think all the same things or any of that. I'm far more libertarian, let's say, than most conservatives. So like on an easy one, like I'm for legalizing weed, most conservatives aren't. That would be a very easy one. Now, on the left, they don't really have a unifying principle. The left, broadly speaking, they believe in government. So the government should do a lot. And then to get to your point where they're always outdoing each other to be more woke, it's like, oh, well, I believe in government. I think government's good. So no, 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 I believe in more government. I believe in more government. And that's why they always spin out of control. So an easy example would be like $15 minimum wage is a debate here in the United States. Now, me from a liberty perspective, I don't think the government has any right, certainly the federal government, to tell me as a small businessman, which I am, to how, how much I should pay my employees. Now, I pay all my guys extremely well, and they work hard for me, and I pay for all their health insurance, and I'm happy to do it. But I don't think the government has a right to tell me what to do. Now, on the left, you get Bernie Sanders, and Bernie goes, $15 minimum wage. Now, Bernie's never run a business. He has no idea about how that actually works and that how that'll drive up prices. And, you know, we've got automation right now. And if you're going to tell McDonald's that they have to hire uh, people at $15, they're going to replace them with iPads and all the problems with that. But then what happens is someone else will come along. In this case, there's a congresswoman here named Rashida Tlaib, who's another progressive. And she says, no, 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 not 15, 20. And it's like, well, I guess, yeah, why not? Because you made up a number. Now you just made up a higher number. Why not? I guess you're a better person. So because they don't have an underlying principle that's related to individual rights or, or true freedom or liberty, they just have, oh, I kind of feel like we should do this stuff. From that that's mindset, why, it exists. That's it. Like, that's, that's it. Yeah. That's a positive mindset to have is like, hey, people should be paid well, that. Agreed. Absolutely. They should be paid more money so they can live and have better lives. But where does that money come from? Well, Where that's the thing. They, they often, what I always say about Bernie Sanders or just generally these people is they say things that sound good if you're just thinking about it at one level. So most of it sounds good. Healthcare for everybody, free college for everybody. Like that kind of sounds nice, right? But then when you think about it, that there's no such thing as really free anything. Where are we going to take this money? You know, why should we be allowed to take money from some and give it to others? What is ever enough? And they never really have answers for any of that stuff. And by the way, that's why whenever socialism has been instituted, wherever it's been tried, a lot of people die on the way. They bring it with a smile, right? They say, oh, we're, we're for everybody. The, Hitler, I mean, the, the Nazis were the national socialists. The idea was we're going to make a better society for everybody. But what do you got to do in the, in the process of that? You got to kill a lot of people. And, and I always compare it to Thanos from the Avengers movies. Thanos saw a universe that had finite resources. And he said, he thought he was a good guy. He said, I'm going to wipe out half the universe so that we can survive. But wiping out half the universe is a pretty bad thing. And that's unfortunately what the socialist ideology leads to. So I don't think Bernie Sanders in and of himself or, or Jeremy Corbyn, he, well, although I do think he's a worse person, I don't think these people want to wipe out half of the, of the universe or half of Earth but I think their ideas are so flawed that it, it starts spreading the seeds for regular people that to do some pretty terrible things.
That's uh, one of the that's one of the attitudes that I see quite a bit with this debate in Australia, and it happened after a young lady was unfortunately murdered and raped, and this attitude of you shouldn't have to worry about people attacking you in public in a dark spot, and I agree with that. It's very much the similar sort of attitude of hey, minimum wage should be fifteen dollars so people can live their best life. But unfortunately, you do have to worry about people doing horrible things. You do have to be concerned about crazy people because they exist. We are not in this utopia that this progressive mindset calls for. And that's, it, there will never be this, we will never reach that utopia. They'll never, they'll never be happy enough. And I think that's just a strange world to be in where you are constantly trying to find something and build something that inevitably will fail. Well, if you try everything you can to get to utopia, most likely you get to dystopia. I mean, that's, that's really what happens there. So the idea that, of course, everyone would agree that nobody, no woman walking down the street should be afraid, of course. And that's what I mean about the bumper sticker version of it sounds right. Well, we all agree with that. And then it sounds good. But then it's the policies that they have to institute to make that happen. So what would it really take? Like, let's say some politician in Australia said, we're going to really make that happen. Well, okay, that means you have no dark alleys. So we're going to put lights everywhere. Now we have electricity costs or whatever, but also we should probably have drones circling everything all the time, recording everybody at all the time, making sure nobody ever does anything, which by the way, still won't stop bad things from happening, but you'll have given up a lot of privacy. You'll have given up a lot of personal independence and autonomy in the process on top of all the costs and everything else. So that's, that really is the tough part for, I think, those of us who are just basically good people who want other people to live how they want to live. We have a harder job to sell something that's real. If I was just selling snake oil, I would just use the, the, the Bernie bumper stickers. And, and that's what he does. Free college for everybody. Well, why does Bernie want free college? Is it because he really, putting aside that he knows it's not free, is it really because he wants everyone to learn as much as possible as you're supposed to do in college and then go forth in the world? Of course not. If you ever wanted to indoctrinate the most amount of young people into leftist dogma, what, where would you send them? You'd send them to universities where 90% of the professors are leftists. So he's not dumb, but you have to look below, below the layer. And, and right now it's like we're in the middle of this corona thing. And so he's screaming about socialized medicine. And it's like, you know what? A lot of the countries that have socialized medicine have the worst situation related to corona right now. But you have to think that through. So we have to get over the bumper sticker stuff. And that makes our job, I think, a little bit harder, but probably a little more rewarding, too, because it really makes you think about why you think things. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned universities there. Now, one of the videos that uh, you were very well known for, I think, two years ago was uh -oh. dealing with the the worst hour and 10 minutes of anyone's life ever. <laughs> and, and as someone that coincidentally, who, that was the day I started drinking. Yeah. As someone who performs on stage, I mean, I've had shit shows. I've performed stand up on a bus. Uh, you know, I've had tough crowds, but this university, there was protesters chanting black lives matters for about three or four minutes. Just that word, just the same phrase over and over again. Another lady really almost got you was shaking a jar. That was good. Oh, the jar. Yeah. The yeah. jar was fantastic. I mean, these hecklers the entire time, how, what, what was that, that show like, well, not a show that, that speech, that talk like for you, how did you deal with those hecklers? And what so was your mindset after that? 
so there's a couple interesting things that um, go into that that you don't see or you don't know if you just watch the video. So first off, it was University of New Hampshire. So if people want to see the video, they can just search Dave Rubin University of New Hampshire. Now, what happened was there were supposed to be about two, I think 300 students that were attending the event and it was ticketed and it was sold out and 300 students were supposed to be there. Then the protesters start posting on Facebook that, you know, this white, Nazi or God knows what they're saying about me, just the endless nonsense that they say about anybody is coming to campus and we have to protest. So then the university says, we can't even secure a room. This is too much of a security threat. So they decide to move the event from a 300 person room to a hockey rink off campus. So when you see that video, I'm, I have 300 people in front of me and I'm standing in front of behind 6,000 empty seats. So just, you know, as a performer, it's like you want a packed freaking room, right? A but instead room, I'm a tight room. Yeah, you want a tight, you want them on top of you and which is actually why the Sydney Opera House was so freaking amazing because I didn't realize it was a theater in the round. So when you get laughs and you know, you're used to getting laughs this way, which is awesome. You you tell a joke, the laughs come at you, but now you got laughs coming this way, you got laughs hitting you from behind. It was wow. amazing. Um, but so first off, the, the university already failed before the event began because they, by saying we can't even secure a room on our own campus, they've already conceded. They've already, they've already said to the protesters, you win. No matter what happens here, you win because we're, we're not going to host this thing on our campus. So that was, that was one thing. Then as the momentum started picking up like an hour before, hundreds of other kids that wanted to get in to support me or, or hear what I was going to talk about, they wouldn't let them in, but they let in all these other protesters. And you're right, they come with noisemakers and they set their phones so that every few minutes they could chant mindlessly and, and all this stuff. And I used every sort of trick I had in, in the book and trick that I've learned from stand-up and crowd work. And there's a moment where these two kids right up front, they just start chanting. I don't even remember what they were chanting. Maybe it was Black Lives Matter. But I walk right up to them, you know, and I'm five, six feet away from them and I'm trying to look them in the eye and I'm going, guys, instead of chanting this, these slogans at me, is there anything I said up here that offended you? Is there anything that you think I believe that maybe I don't? Let's talk it out. And they wouldn't even look at me. I mean, they literally would not look at me because they don't want to see you as a human. The most interesting part of this whole thing, though, was there's a moment where, um, where they're screaming that I'm a transphobe. And a woman in the audience says that she's trans and I hate trans people and I'm a Nazi and all, all of this insane stuff. And for the record, I grew up with Holocaust survivors in my family. So this is not something that I take lightly. Um, but this woman's screaming at me and instead of screaming at her, I treat her with complete respect. I tell her, look, as a trans person, I want you to be treated equally under the law. I hope you have people that love you. I hope you're happy in life and have purpose. I mean, I said everything that I would say to anyone else. Um, I said the one thing though, is that I don't want the government being allowed to tell me what pronouns I can use to refer to you. But if in my daily life, if I meet a trans person or if I, you know, sometimes you would meet a trans person, but not even know, but I would use whatever pronoun I felt was appropriate. If someone treats me respectfully, I'll treat them respectfully. All I didn't want the government to compel speech, which by the way, is the issue, as you know, that put Jordan Peterson on the map in Canada. Anyway, she heard me say that and, I'm st and she's still yelling, I'm a Nazi and a bigot and the rest of it. I didn't know this till weeks later. It turned out that that woman, that trans woman, she was a gender studies professor at the university. Wow. Think, how twist, think how deeply twisted that is. You are allowing professors at universities to come to silence invited speakers to those universities. A normal university, look, I have nothing against this woman, but a normal university in a functioning society would, would reprimand her or suspend her or whatever it is. 
and I'm not trying to instigate anything on her, you know, two years later or whatever it is, but they did nothing. And of course they did nothing because they don't want to be held because the administrators are cowards too. They're afraid, oh, now they go after the trans professor, they'll be called trans. Next thing you know, they've got a hundred students in their office and they don't have a job anymore. So every time we give an inch to this monster, we actually sort of sign our own death warrant. Um, but I've, I've been through plenty of those and, and that's where the stand-up chops, you know, they come in. But there is one, there's one really funny moment where, that I'm sure you saw where, you know, they're, I'm just trying to calm these kids down and they're all screaming. And finally, I walk up to, the, to, to two of them and I'm like, would you guys just shut the fuck up? Guys, seriously, shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. It's pathetic. You're pathetic human beings. That's how I said it, completely sarcastically. People are laughing, but then of course in the school paper the next day, what do they do? Dave Rubin walked up to some of the protesters and told them to shut the fuck up. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, shut the fuck up is very different than shut the fuck up. Well, so, you are a very articulate human being, obviously, you know, you, I suppose. you talk to people for hours on end about a very uh, important subjects. For me, like I, I wouldn't be able to contain myself in that situation. I would have turned into the biggest pig alive. I mean, you've you know done what? amazingly Every, well. You know what? We all fight the battles a little bit differently. And I really mean that, you know, like some of us can do it a little more subtly. Some of us use, you know, it's like any comic, right? Some comics are insult comics. Some comics are sort of like highbrow thought comics. Like all of us have a different skill set, a different bag of tricks. So, you know, may, maybe you'll have your day when you get to deal with one of those if you haven't had it yet. I hope you get that day. I hope it comes. I hope it comes. Yeah. And it's funny, yeah. you know, you talk about that lady who was a professor there. The, the, the attitude that there is no debate to be had is such a strange concept for me. For someone who, you know, I go to a, a party or, or I'm meeting someone for the first time, maybe we have a difference of ideas, we talk about it. But these people, they don't have that concept in the back of their mind. It's like, this is the dogma. This is the idea. This is the truth. This is the, 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 what is known as my truth, which is the most hilarious thing ever. Right, because my truth apparently supersedes everyone else's truth or whatever might be actual truth. But, How does but that trump totally anything? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but the thing is that they want you, see, that's the thing. These are generally people on the left are sort of very anti-religion, a lot of atheists, a lot of, um, a lot of nihilists in a way, all of that stuff. And yet they act very religiously. You're right, because they act like they're always mocking religious people. And I have found, you know, I spoke at Liberty University. That's the largest evangelical college in the United States. I went up there. They know that I'm married to a man. That's not something that they're thrilled with. Um, they know that I'm pro-choice. That's even worse to most evangelicals than being, being gay married or being gay. And I have several other positions that they're not thrilled with. 14,000 people. It was the biggest audience I've ever spoken in front of. And they were thrilled that I was there. I got a standing ovation. I walked around campus. People came up to me, hugging me, shaking my hands, and it was great. Those are supposed to be the bad religious people, and they're just simply not. And then you get these sort of hyper-secular people, and they act like the, they act like the caricature of religious people. And that, that's a really interesting concept to me. Um, which also has led to some of my changing thoughts on the importance of, of religion in a way and religious stories. That has been my position on it for some time with less people. And I'm not a religious person, but less people being religious, they need to find something that they can really put their teeth into. And yep. whether that is this woke version of liberalism, whether it's a far right ideology, whether you're in the KKK, whatever, you need something in your life to grip uh, onto something to think about something to you know with 
I, I find that people who don't have something to belong to are often the most anxious, the most depressed. And then they can find like, like the born again, Christian sort of idea. They are struggling in their life for whatever reason, whether it's drugs yep. or alcohol, whatever they find religion, they become better people and they put that down to religion. Now, is it because of, of God? Perhaps. Is it because you have something to dedicate your life to? Probably. Yeah. I, well, I, I see. It's, it's so interesting to me because the, the way you started that was I'm not religious myself. And I, I feel the same way about that. I am not religious in any sort of traditional religious sense. I do believe in tradition. I do believe that there is, there is value in, in finding community around religion and all that. That doesn't mean religions haven't done bad things. Um, but this is very much, and I write about this uh, in, the, in the chapter about Jordan, chapter nine, about finding a mentor. Jordan really did move me on this. The, the importance of sort of biblical stories to sort of underguard the truth. Because without that, you're right, people have this endless hole. And it's not to say you can't be an atheist and be a freaking amazing, wonderful, decent person. And, and to like butcher an old joke, I mean, many of my best friends are atheists, right? So like I have tons of atheists that I love, but I don't think a society can organize around a lack of belief. I think we need something beneath that. And this has been an ongoing debate with, I think, some of the best thinkers that we have, where a lot of, I think, the still left-leaning people think that the Enlightenment was the moment where human flourishing all began, you know, just a couple thousand years ago. There's uh, a couple hundred years ago, sorry, that, the, that suddenly it was all sort of terrible. It led us to the 1700s, and then boom, all these great ideas happened. And actually, it's not that. It's the, it's the sort of generational churning of ideas an individualism that religion sort of taught us through, and it doesn't mean it's perfect, but you know, there's a reason that people believe that David can beat Goliath. You know, why do I, why do I attack YouTube? Well, maybe Dave can beat Google. There's a reason we believe the little guy can do it, and these are stories that, that were taught in that way. That, that's a very odd position for me to take as, as someone that's not particularly religious. I, I sense you're probably in the same bucket. Yeah, well, it is the story passed down through generations. And I guess that's what the Bible is in many respects. It's a way to tell people. And, you know, we have it here in Australia with the Australian Aborigines. They have a very a vocal way of telling their stories about the dream time. And they tell stories about, you know, this is this is how this happened to this particular person and then this occurred. It's, it's an example to people of how something happened or why something happened or why you shouldn't do it. And my position on religion has always been it was, you know, it was put in place to control people and to tell people how to do things or explain things through, uh, you know, fear of God, all that type of stuff. I was an atheist for a long time. And then I started to listen to a lot of people who uh, talk about the universe and, and uh, molecular biology and all that type of stuff. And I just threw my hands up in the air goes, I don't know what the fuck's going on. I guess <laughs> I'm agnostic. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. There's, yeah. there's as much evidence for and against on both sides, but the the tribalism, the the religion of people, it is a it is a strange time. But what I have seen recently, and I don't know if you've seen this as well in, in the states, people since Corona has become such a big issue, I don't see as many people worrying about uh, gender studies. I don't see as many people worrying about feminism. It seems like because we now have an actual thing to be worried about, that whole uh, the whole idea of, okay, when people don't have anything to worry about, they make things up. This is right now a period of time where people have something to be scared of, an invisible force that's coming after you. It's going to kill your granny, you know. This is something to be fearful of. 
And now that people have this, they are in the position where, okay, let's forget about what we're studying at university. Let's forget about what they're talking about on Twitter. And now let's worry about this particular thing. Do you find that that is the same in the States? Yeah, it is. And I'm actually thrilled about that. I've sent out a couple tweets on this, that suddenly the, the gender pronoun stuff and the social justice people and screaming about bathrooms and the rest of it, it feels pretty freaking irrelevant right now. And, you know, whether it's a guy or a girl or a black person or a white person or a straight person or a gay person that finds the cure for coronavirus is irrelevant. And if you think it's relevant, it's very obvious that you're making the mistake. Like, are you not going to take the cure because it was found by a straight white man? So I do sense that because the shit has hit the fan right now and we are trapped in our homes, we're reevaluating our lives. We're thinking, do I want to live in a big city? Am I trapped in a house with someone I like or love? Did I make some mistakes? What kind of job do I want? Did I live a good life? What if society never returns to the, to the good old days? I think there's, there are so many people reevaluating the whole freaking thing, which by the way, mainstream media completely ignores. I mean, they keep us caught in the political fight of the day. Um, but yes, I think the, the overt sort of, sort of narcissism that the left has pushed on all of us about their pet issues that aren't really issues, I think is being pushed aside. And I think there's even something better than that happening, which is that right now, certainly from an American perspective, there are a lot of things that I wrote about in this book. And I finished this book in July and the, the publishing process just takes a long time to, to get out there. I, fin I finished this in July, we, we edited it in the fall. I, so I haven't touched this thing basically since Thanksgiving, November, and here we are now in April. And I am seeing ideas that I put in here, like states' rights, that's a huge issue right now in the United States, which is a, hasn't been talked about in a long time, but suddenly people are talking about states' rights. Can, can New York and Montana open up under the same circumstances? I mean, New York has a crazy condensed population, especially the metro area. Montana, there's very few people that live there in a huge space, sort of like what you're describing with Australia. It's like, you guys, Australia, can open up in a different circumstance than the United States. Obviously, you're, you're an island, you know what I mean? You've got a lot of space. And so suddenly, when, when things get bad, when things get real, and people have to confront reality, age-old ideas that are good actually start bubbling up. So that's why I'm actually pretty hopeful about things right now. Something I wanted to ask you about, and it's a, it's a person who I'm extremely interested in, and probably the, the number one uh, person who comes under attack by the left is Donald Trump. I, my personal opinion on Donald Trump is I don't know much about his uh, political aspirations and all that type of stuff, things he wants to do with the country. I mean, we've got enough political problems going on here, so yeah. you've got to weigh up where you spend your time. But... <laughs> You mean you can't spend 24 hours a day obsessing over Donald Trump like everybody here? You have other you, things you have to think about? You should about? try and wrap your head around Australian politics. It's boring yeah. as fuck. Anyway, it's <laughs> just terrible. But Trump is one of these people who I thoroughly enjoy listening to. I've seen him put out some very interesting pieces of policy that many people just call horrible, awful, all these things. And then you actually look into them and they're actually quite good. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you had dinner with him recently. I'd <laughs> yeah. love to know about that story. What happened? What's he like? Yeah. So I've only told this story once or twice publicly before. Um, so it's interesting. So back in December, I was doing an event with Turning Point USA, which is a college conservative group. And I spoke uh, in the morning. And just as I was getting on stage, they announced that Trump was going to speak shortly after. So they canceled everybody else. So in effect, I ended up opening for Trump, which that, that's just bizarre enough in itself. But, right you know, for the yeah, Secret Service and, and the whole, you know, the whole thing. And it's very intense. 
Um, so before I get to the dinner part, it was also the first time that I ever heard Trump speak personally. So, you know, I see the clips on TV, obviously, but I'd never been to a speech. And one thing that I really learned from the speech is that in many ways, Trump is a comic. Trump, when he gives a speech, he's doing stand-up in a certain way, meaning that he has a set, he has, you know, the, the pre-packaged stuff on the prompter, but he goes off prompter and he, he works the room. That's what he's doing. He's doing crowd work. He looks in the crowd. He'll find people. He'll get people cheering the whole thing. And there was a really interesting moment in it where he gets up there and he's talking about wind power. And he goes, you know, I know more about wind power than anybody. I've been studying wind power my whole life. And the whole crowd's laughing because, of course, nobody thinks Donald Trump knows anything about wind power. But, but he's making a joke. And I turned to David, my husband, next to me, and I said, I guarantee you that's the headline on CNN. Donald Trump says he knows more about wind power than anyone, even though he clearly meant it as a joke. And then actually, for the few minutes after that, then when he got back to the script, explained a lot of things about wind power. Of course, the headlines, I don't remember if it was CNN exactly, but the headlines after Donald Trump says he knows more about wind power than anybody. And it's like, man, you idiots fall for it every time. Anyway, later that night, uh, we bumped into Trump Jr. there and his, his girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, and I, I've become friendly with Jr. and I've had him on the show. And he said, hey, would you guys like to join us at Mar-a-Lago tonight for dinner? And Mar-a-Lago is Trump's uh, country club down in West Palm Beach. I said, yeah, we, we would like to do that. So we head on over and Mar-a-Lago is kind of like, try to picture Trump in a building, like as a bu in building form. It looks like his hair sort of. It's, it's sprayed and it's golden and it's kind of over the top and the whole thing. We walk in there, uh, you know, sec uh, security's moving us in. There's an initial dining room, like the main dining room, probably about 60 people or so. And uh, I see Candace Owens there and a couple other people I know. And then they move us into the, the smaller dining room and we have a four top for the four of us and we have dinner and sitting literally at the table right next to us is Trump and the first lady Melania and Rudy Giuliani's there and there's a couple other people. And by the way, this is like two or three days after impeachment was announced. And wow. everybody, on, everybody on television is announced, Trump, the walls are closing in. He's a paranoid lunatic. He's losing his mind. You know, all of these crazy headlines. The guy's sitting there. I was looking at him. He has no tie on. He's sitting there having a ball. He's laughing. He's chatting with people. Like, I didn't see any walls closing in. Anyway, we have a nice dinner. And at the, at the end, Junior says to me, hey, you want to you wanna say hi to my dad? I said, yes, I would like to say hi to the president. So we walk up to him and Don Jr. says, hey, dad, this is Dave Rubin. He's got a great podcast. And Trump looks up at me and he's like, ah, I kind of recognize you. I recognize you. And I said, oh, well, I'm on Tucker Carlson a lot. And he said, oh, that must be it. And then he turns to David, my husband, and he says, and who are you? And David goes, well, I'm his husband. And Trump goes like this. He slaps his hands on the table. He goes, husband, husband, that is just great. That is great. Honey, honey, Melania. Honey, could you believe it? These two guys are married. And then he looks at us and he goes, you know what your problem is? You guys are too good looking. That's your problem. <laughs> and, then, and then he goes, he goes, I want you to know one thing, guys. I don't give a shit. And I don't think anyone's given a shit for 20 years. And then uh, Melania was kind of looking at David. So he walked around the table, started chatting with her. And then Trump Jr. got pulled away. And then I had about five minutes with Trump. And it was right when Bloomberg was about to enter the race. And we talked about Bloomberg for a little bit. And he struck me as just a freaking, he was a normal guy. When I said hello to him, when, when Junior introduced me, I said, it's an honor to meet you, Mr. President. And I could tell that by even saying that, if I had said, yo, Don, what's up? That would have been fine too. Like, I just think, I'm not saying the guy is, he's the greatest man on earth. I'm not saying he's the most honest person on earth. 
politics is a dirty freaking game and he's decided to play it. And, uh, and I think your basic premise is right there that the policies have been pretty good and he's, he's fighting a freaking monster. You know, it's like everyone thought the Republicans tried it the other way. They tried it with McCain. They tried it with Romney, you know, guys that are sort of more moderate, let's say, and decent. And those guys lost. So Trump was just like, all right, I'll do the dirty work. Mm. And, and that's what he's doing. It's interesting. But the idea he, that he's a homophobe or something like that is just yeah. Is, that's is, what I was going to say. It's interesting that he has to come out and say, "Hey, listen, I know you probably think in the back of your yeah. mind that I disagree with your lifestyle and the choice of your partner and this type of stuff, but really, I don't give a shit. You do you, baby. Whatever you want to do, go for it." That that really even the way he said it, like try to picture, you know, like we can hear him saying a lot of stuff, but the way he said shit, like I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> like even that was like I, I think he really meant it. Which by the way, it doesn't mean that he loves gay people. I don't think he has to love gay people. All all anyone should want is equality. And and let's not forget, this is the first president of in the history of the United States to go into his first term basically pro gay marriage. Barack Obama was against gay marriage his first term. So I, I just, the reason we finally posted that story was because I was just like, you know, I hear this same stuff over and over. You know, he hates gay people. He, he hates black people. And it's like, it's just not true. I think the guy likes success. That doesn't make him great. It doesn't make him perfect. But I think he likes success. I think he likes people who are doing interesting things. And I think he likes people who have some kind of purpose. That, that, that's my temperature on it. The, uh, the episode you released with your husband, David, that yeah. was the first time that he was on your show. Have you been not keeping him out of the picture? <laughs> but like, is that, is that, because that's something that I do with my partner. I, I don't yeah. show her off because my concern is that's a way people will try and get to me is through her. You know, yeah. saying horrible things or, 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 you know, sharing lies or whatever. That's my yeah. big concern with her. It's, it's a pretty wise move, I would say. And, and David and I have been together for 10 years. We've been married for five years. We've been, he, he's the executive producer of the show. We've been working together on this forever. He's never wanted to be in front of the camera. You know, like he, he, he always tells me, he's like, he was a popular kid in high school. He was popular in college. He's like, I got my ego thing already. I don't need it. You're, you're good on camera. Go ahead and do it. We did this because it was a little bit of a promo for the book. And we know that, you know, a lot of people always ask me about him. He has no desire to take it any further than that. The second the camera went off, he like, you know, wiped his brow and he's like, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't need to do that again. And, and by the way, I think that's partly why our show has been successful because you know this, it's like when you're in front of the camera, you have a specific job but, and you want the people behind the camera to be good at that job. One of the things that I've found, uh, especially here in LA is everyone wants to be in front of the camera. And when you're behind the camera, you're directing, producing, whatever it is, but your real goal is to be the guy that's on the other side you will not do your best work. And in many ways, you will try to undermine the entire thing. He has no desire to do that. And I'm very selective when I hire people to make sure to say to them, hey, if you're my director, you're my director. Like maybe one day you get on camera in the middle of a Twitter video while you're fixing a light, but like we're, we're not switching jobs here. I'm not the director, you're, you're not the host. Um, so I don't think he'll really do any of that kind of stuff again. Um, you know, maybe, maybe here and there. But it's just not what he wants to do, and uh, you know, it was a fun well, little. He's thing. a natural, regardless. So send, send, send my. <laughs> I will. I, I, on the point of uh, people trying to be in front of the camera, one of the things that I've tried to do here uh, with with my career in YouTube and comedy and all that type of stuff is, I live in a in a town called Newcastle. It's got maybe two hundred thousand people live there. It's quite small, but it's quite spread out. Two hours north of Sydney, 
and it is a bubble here. Like no one cares if you've got some online fame or you're a comedian, you're in the paper. It's fantastic because I go to the Gold Coast a lot. That's where my management are. I go up there and everyone's, you know, everyone's got blue ticks. Everywhere you go, blue ticks everywhere. Everyone's freaking out about blue ticks. You go to Sydney, everyone's showing off with cars and all this type of stuff. You come home and you know i've got my my two rescue dogs and i just saw you rescued another dog congratulations yeah. well, clyde, well, we, temp- we, we we got clyde and then i don't know if you saw this literally today my associate producer found a dog on the street that was like basically dying it was just laying there and really sick and he brought the dog here and we nursed it back to health and then i called the shelter that I, that saved clyde and they just brought it brought the, that one to the vet oh fantastic uh, so i'm running i'm running a freaking veterinary center no, it's good here, though it's made i've yeah. got I've got a greyhound and a whippet. Uh, the greyhound we saved from the racing industry and the whippet uh, someone had online. They just couldn't deal with him because he was a puppy. You know, you got, and, no, no Australian kettle dog, no, uh, or you guys call them, you guys call them red healers, right? Uh, blue healers or blue, red healers. Blue, is it, yeah. Whatever, dog, spot, you know, we'll call them whatever. But that, I had uh, a cattle dog growing up. Um, we lived on a, an acreage, so we had a couple of acres there, and he used to run, uh, run around and enjoy himself. But, uh, but no, mate, I got the old, the old greyhound who just sleeps for twenty three hours a day. Yeah, that's a lot of sleeping. He's a darling. <laughs> but having that, having that ability to come home to an environment where it's not all about work, I think that's just such an integral part of a of a career that can span span maybe a couple of decades rather than something that's so short lived. I mean, I'm sure you see that in LA all the time. People who pop up and then disappear just as quickly. Well, even just in the last couple of years, I mean, I've been sort of surprised that some of the people that I thought maybe were going to be huge that kind of fizzled out and some of the people that I didn't think were going to be huge that have done it really well. And, and sometimes I've gotten it right. There were a couple of people, you know, the first time I had Candace Owens on and she was, she was in effect nobody. She was, she was known as Red Pill Black on YouTube with 100,000 subscribers or something. And the second I finished that interview with her, she ended up staying for dinner. And I said to her, I said, you are going to freaking light the world on fire. It was so obvious to me. Um, but to your point, yeah, escaping this, it's important, man. I mean, knowing when to shut off Twitter, knowing that you can't read all the YouTube comments, knowing that, that your life is something besides the digital thing. You know what I mean? When you get to go home and lay there with the dogs and your girlfriend and you know, go on a vacation and hopefully eat some decent food or whatever it is that you like to do. And, and that for me, you know, writing this book and the press and everything, like it's, it's particularly crazy right now. Like I would say I'm at like the, almost like the zenith of kind of the craziness that I've ever been in. But what I've really been trying to do amongst that, you know, I've had four or five weeks of Corona where it's like, I've been home We've been, we've been doing some more gardening. We don't have a lot, you know, it's LA. I don't have a lot of space here. We don't have anything close to an acre, but we got some space on the side of our house. We're doing some gardening. We're, we're cooking a ton. Uh, you know, we've done some stuff in the house and like just trying to like organize my life right because otherwise, otherwise what's the purpose of the other thing? You know, it's like if your show is good and you're good on camera or whatever it is, but, you're, but you shut off the camera and your life is chaos and your house is a disaster and you're in a bad relationship and all that stuff, it's like, what did you really do? I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting way to live your life being locked inside your house. I mean, in Australia right now with the <laughs> coronavirus, you can't leave the house without a reason. Like the police will pull you over and say, where are you going? And if you don't have a reason, they'll slap you with a $1,600 fine, which is insane. But that's a whole nother, a whole nother, actually on that topic, the Victorian yeah. government, yeah. <laughs> their police were doing spot checks at people's houses, knocking on the door and saying, who's here? 
which is I mean, the most big brother, you know, 1984 thing Orwellian attitude towards absolutely anything that I've ever heard. And the thing that does my head in about it is the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has been on the telly every single night here, and that's rare for Australian Prime Minister. Um, and when he decrees to the nation that this is the new rule, he just says it. Now, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but he never says, he never has the attitude of, hey, listen, I know this is fucking crazy, man. <laughs> this is insane, but we have to do this for this particular reason. R rather than doing that, he just says, this is the new law, go. And I think that's yeah. just such a strange way to do it. I think we're, we're all worried about exactly what you just described there. Look, I live in LA where I have a progressive governor of California and a progressive mayor of LA, Eric Garcetti. And it's like, you know, they're telling people if you snitch on your neighbor who might not be social distancing properly or who opened his restaurant without a proper authority or whatever it might be, that you might get rewarded, literally take pictures of people and you could get a reward, a cash reward. They're doing something similar in New York. I mean, look, I get we got an unprecedented thing here. We should social distance, do the six feet. When I walk my dog, everyone's got a mask. Um, you know, we're all doing the best we can. But you're right, that creeping thing where suddenly it's like, all right, we've been doing this for six weeks. Now it's going to be two months. And then you kind of forget what the old world was like. You know, you kind of forget. Oh, you know, I used to just go out to pick up some food for lunch and then come home. That was pretty great. But you kind of forget that that ever existed. And that's what I'm worried about because, you know, you live in Australia, you live in the United States, Canada, UK. We've all had it pretty freaking good. You know, we can complain and we can watch the social justice warriors spin their heads about how terrible everything's, but we've had it pretty good. It's the best and, time ever to be alive. Right. It, of course, th there is less poverty worldwide. There is less uh, infanticide. There's less uh, children going hungry. There's more green on earth than ever before. I mean, there's, there's all these great things. Poor people now are like kings of the poor, you know, from, from 100 years ago. We've done so much good. Um, and again, not perfect, but we've done so much good. We've progressed in so many of the right ways that I'm a little afraid we've sort of grown fat on that goodness, where now it's like, you know, I wonder, you know, would the founders, if the government was suddenly telling the founders, you got to stay at home all the time forever and watch the economy tank. And, you know, do you even trust your governmental leaders? I don't know. Uh, I wonder what they would do, but I do think at some point we will get to a breaking point. And, and the uncomfortable part about this is all of us are going to have to have some discussion at some point, and we should be having it now. At some point, the countries have to reopen again. It, we can't live in our houses forever, right? Unless we truly are in, in a science fiction movie right now. Maybe we are. But like, if the countries are going to open, we are going to have to accept that a certain amount of people will get sick. And that's the only truth that there is related to this. There will be no perfect system. But a certain amount of people are gonna get sick, but that's not a reason to stay in our houses forever and all of us just live forever like this. That, that's crazy too. And that's the constant battle between safety and liberty or security and liberty. Yeah, at some point, people will crack. You can't live in your house forever. I mean, I can do it. I, I work from here. I can get things delivered. Um, you know, my, my family's here, but pe some people live on their own. Some people are doing it tough. And this is why people like yourself and myself and people in our position where we can provide entertainment, we can provide uh, intellectual thought, whatever it happens to be to people in their house. And perhaps through the greatest segue of all time, it would be a great time to buy a particular book, Dave Rubin. Oh man, that was a freak. That was, you've done this before. 
Mate, it's 10 o'clock in the morning now. I'm on fire. <laughs> this is where I begin. <laughs> Don't burn yes. this book. Who is this book for? Well, this book's for everybody. Look, it, it, clearly, if, if you listen to this, uh, you get my feelings about the left and what the left has become. And, and obviously, if you're following you, people sort of understand that. And this, this is a map to sort of escape that in a functional way. But it's also a map for people that are further on the right than I am to understand what a true liberal perspective on the world is. And, and I would say more than anything else, it's, it's, a, it's simply written for anyone who wants to live in a society with some people they disagree with and, and still be able to function together, still be able to have that exchange, still be able to argue things and not kill each other, and, and to, really, to really remind us, I guess, of, of how special this thing is. And when I say this thing, I mean, I mean freedom and liberty. And, and obviously, mostly what I write about is, is an American view on that, um, but it's, it's so much of it is perfectly applicable to what you guys have in, in Australia, what's going on in the UK, all over the world. And, uh, and that let's, let's try to just be a little bit better than the guys who would love to shut us down. And that's actually not that hard to do. Absolutely. Well, Dave, I'm sure you've got a million things to do today, mate. And this press junket just will not stop. But I hope you, I hope you sell millions of copies and it's just, it keeps you, you and your husband absolutely happy for the rest of your lives. And you, you live like kings. That's what I want for you. Well, I appreciate that and stay safe. And uh, look, it sounds like you're doing it right too. You got some people you love around you. You're working from home and you're putting it out there. And uh, that's all we can do. That's all we can do. Just do it. And, and hopefully you don't go crazy in the process. That's what I'm hoping, mate. Thank you very much for joining us. I do appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Really Thank enjoyed it. Thank you very it. much. Cheers. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.